Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged today to have as a guest, Yuki Miyamoto. Did I pronounce that? correctly? You- yes, perfect. Oh, thank goodness. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of her bio. She is a professor, full professor of religious studies at DePaul University, and is an ethicist whose work centers on nuclear discourse and environmental ethics through the framework of comparative ethics. Uh, one of her books here that we're going to be talking about today is Beyond the Mushroom Cloud, Commemoration, Religion, and Responsibility After Hiroshima, which examines the ways in which sufferers of the atomic bombings of 1945 came to terms with the nuclear attacks within their religious understandings while critiquing the frameworks imposed by nation states. And uh, Yuki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, John. Of course. Now, I understand you've got some other books other than what I mentioned there. Anything else you'd like to mention? Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, After publishing that book, I have published two more books. One of them is a Japanese book entitled Naze Genbaku Ga Aku Dewa Nai No Ka, in which I was comparing the uh, discourse discourse in the United States and in Japan in terms of the atomic bombing and subsequent nuclear arms, how these two countries differently views the nuclear issues and the atomic bombings. Uh, so that's one, and that's that was um, that came out in 2020, and in 2021 I wrote a world otherwise environmental praxis in Minamata. Minamata is a place. It's a little bit like Love Canal. Um, it's a big environmental. Uh, pollution took place in the 50s, but of course it went on for decades in Minamata, which is located in a small island, not not small, but in the island, one of the archipelagos of Japan. And um, I was looking into those people who fought against the um, corporations and the government, both were not necessarily sided with them. So they were uh, kind of fighting against them in lawsuits, but also in other ways envisioning a world otherwise. Um, So it's definitely their spirituality and religious sensitivities helped them to envision a new way of the world being operated. So that's the gist of the book. Oh, great. Well, it's great to have you here. Just so folks know how we got to this point where we're having this conversation. Uh, I found a great article that was published that you wrote a religion news service that talked about this fascinating subject that we're going to unravel a little bit today about how the victims, uh, the survivors of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, how they wrestled with the bombings in light of their religious traditions, uh, both Catholicism and Buddhism. And it's just, it's fascinating. One of the things we try to do here at Multi-Faith Matters is help people think through how religion is intertwined with and impacts culture. And so this that we're talking about today has great not only historical 
uh, ramifications, but also for the present that will come out in our conversation today. And if mm -hmm. my math is correct, it's been 77 years since those bombings. I mean, it's is that correct? Um, the and then put you on the spot with the math. <laughs> of me, of mine. Uh, but I, I think 45 was the year. So I right. guess, right? Yeah. I think so. Right. Yeah. I, it's yeah. just amazing. I remember when I was a kid growing up in the 1970s, uh, watching World War II documentaries with my dad. And uh, I was uh, fascinated and appalled by the Holocaust and by the atomic bombings. And so I think we're still today, so many years later, dealing with the legacy of these awful events. And as we'll see in our conversation, they speak to us uh, as warnings today. Um, as we begin, how did you come to pursue this research? What Was it both a personal passion as well as academic? What drew you to it? Yes, it's both, actually. I studied with my personal interests. My mother was six years old at the time of the bombing, and she was only one mile away from the hypercenter. And she survived at the time, quote unquote, survived at the time. Um, but uh, her father, who was coming back from the hospital on the night shift, she, he was a doctor, he encountered the atomic bombing somewhere between the hospital and the house. And he was okay. He didn't have any external injuries, fortunately. But in two, in, in two weeks, he died of acute radiation sickness. So I, I've never met him. I really don't know about him. But my mother, when I was growing up, she was not very healthy. She was suffering from um, multiple symptoms, such as um, because she, her um, organs cannot produce healthy blood. So she had to get some blood booster sort of um, every other week in her 40s and then oh, she had some um, vertigo and and she had to lie down uh, she also had cancer later and died passed away so from that experience i tend to call those people who experience the bombing as sufferers because they don't know if they survived and um, so this is kind of from my experiences, but at the same time, growing up in Hiroshima in the 70s and 80s, they were very much anti-nuclear, understandably. And I was totally, um, I, I was growing up, I was immersed in that atmosphere, ambience and ideology, thought and everything. But I always wondered why this voice was not being heard outside, especially to the nuclear countries. So I wanted to know what kind of um, cultural components, social components, maybe, um, maybe, um, sorry, I have a phone call here. I'm sorry. Um, so maybe religious understanding. So all those cultural components, what supports the idea of nuclear weapons, uh, the continuous production of nuclear weapons. And so I, I wanted to know just to understand why, I'm sorry, so this is the phone call. So um, I was always wondering why these two countries have very different understandings on this, the same historical issues. So that was the beginning. And then when I came to the United States, I, I went to the University of Chicago um, for my graduate studies. 
and realized there were so many testimonies from the sufferers, but there is very little books available in English to talk about their philosophy, their ideology, their religious understanding, how they came to terms with this historical event. Um, so I found it a little problematic because testimonies are very important. I, I don't deny that. But then, you know, it only it only brought about some kind of sympathy, like, oh, sorry for that. And sometimes, you know, oh, those people happen to be in a in a bad time, in a bad place, and that kind of understanding. Um, so I just wanted to show the their agencies. They they you know, of course, this experience, this experience is enormous in their lives. They have to come to terms with it. And that's something I wanted to introduce to Anglophone readers. Yeah, uh, I'm, this is not my area of expertise. I'm assuming there have been a lot of different studies uh, of the bombings, different aspects. But I don't think I've ever run across anything like yours looking at these, how different religious populations and groups wrestled with these things. Uh, what was your research process like going into it to try and capture this, these stories? Actually, in Nagasaki, it was much easier. Nagai Takashi, whom I'm focusing on in this article and in my book, he's a kind of saint figure over there. There is a museum built upon the little house that he was living. And he was well-known figure, and he still is. And so there are many things to um, many things to look into, and things are archived. So it was not as difficult. The difficulties is more like in Hiroshima, because Hiroshima. Sometimes you know John Harsey's Hiroshima. If you have read it. Um, that introduces six people who witnessed the atomic bombings, but they are all Christians. Um, because I think John Harsey was able to um, get to know people with Christian connections. But Hiroshima is actually known for two pure land school of Buddhism, which is a particular school sort of... I wouldn't say degenerated, but it came out of two pure land tradition. But it's actually the largest institution in Japan to this day. So it's very um, known sect of school of Buddhism. And Hiroshima is known for adamant adherence of this school. So they must have some understandings. And they kind of give talks, speeches, um, in many venues, but it's harder to find the written documents. So that was uh, difficult. That, that, was, um, that was something I had some time to spend on. And also, I'm, I'm not, I was not trained, and I, I, I'm still not. I was not trained as an um, ethnographer, and I was not confident in representing their thoughts in a fair manner. So what I wanted to do is rather representing what they thought. So they always they already represent themselves in their writings so that I don't have to too much worried about am I representing them fairly. Mm -hmm. 
So, so more like my interpretation of their writings is what I was able to focus on. Um, so that's that's how I tried to do something. So in other words, I kind of came across or stumbled upon this um, Reverend Koji's understanding, which was very fortunate. And and later I got to see him, I got to meet him, I got to talk with him, I brought my students to him. Um, but based upon his writing is what I did. And how did the how did you take the ethnographic, the stories, and then combine that with your your ethical work that you do? How did those two come together? Right. Uh, for me, ethics is not necessarily to teach people what is right, what is wrong, but rather what constitutes goodness in a given society. So analyzing why we think this as good. And when I introduce this idea to students, it, this is a very extreme case. But for example, under Nazi Germany, Many people think that what they are doing was right, right? Um, some people might, so that might be a self-deception, but nonetheless, nonetheless, that was good for Aryan race prosperity. And the same as Japan, dying for the emperor is mm -hmm. a good thing. So when certain actions, certain, so, certain thoughts were considered as good, I'm very interested in what constitutes that goodness, what kind of cultural, social, religious components actually keep that idea or inculcate that idea in the people. So that, that kind of analysis, that kind of interpretation, that's what I take as ethics. Okay, that's very helpful. Now, you mentioned previously, and I picked up a copy of your book and, and found it fascinating, you're dealing with two different uh, religious communities of Pure Land Buddhism that, that you mentioned, and, and also Catholics. Can you share how these two different religious communities tapped into their religious tradition to try and grapple with being survivors or sufferers, sure. as you use? Sorry. Sufferers. Thank you. Um, yes, in Hiroshima, this Reverend Koji, who lost his family family members to the bombing, but he was not a sufferer in a in a narrow sense. Um, he was far away at the time of the bombing. He was evacuated as many other kids at the time um, because of the air raid in the city area. So he came back to the city after the bombing, and then so that's that's how he grew up. That atmosphere like everyone lost their family members at least one or two and then um he was born into this temple to pure land temple so he was kind of destined to be um, to success his father's temple and he was <clears throat> but when he was <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> when he was when he took over he realized that he couldn't just avoid talking avoid talking about the bombing. Everyone is suffering, even though they were not vocal about their suffering of having lost their family members or loved ones. So that's, and also, um, so I think that's how he realized he had to, he himself had to come to terms with what this 
historical event meant to him and meant to his people um, with the same faith. And I think that's how he came up with these three understandings of the bombings. One is this is actually a fault of Hiroshima citizens. And he what he meant was actually um, those people who, quote unquote, survived at the time of the bombing, they never helped other people. That's why they were able to survive. And he thinks that was the fault of Hiroshima citizens. And I found it very interesting because Hiroshima was a military base for a long time. And he didn't mention that. So I wondered why, but I didn't get to talk about it with him. And second layer of faults or errors is uh, Japanese citizens. They were the ones who became kind of warmongers. You know, since 1868, this new Meiji uh, era, which is the Japan became a um, modern nation state. And since then, successively, Japan was involved in wars. And so, and, and then especially toward the end, more aggressive, uh, more aggressively colonizing areas in Asia. So he was definitely referring to that as Japanese citizens' fault or error. And thirdly, he was kind of expanding the scope, saying that this is humankind, the scene of the humankind. And I still kind of juggling the wording. Scene sounds like a little bit too uh, Judeo-Christian sort of connotations. So errors or faults. Uh, so um, this word, especially in Buddhism, is a kind of lost in translation. But anyhow, so these three layers are what what the human natures are, what 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 happened or why hap why this happened, and that's his sort of philosophy or understanding or theology. And when it comes to Nagasaki, it is very interesting. Uh, Nagai, who was a convert actually, but he was married to a person who was. Um, who was a Catholic family for generations, and especially during the persecutions. And um, you might imagine during the war, the, the Second World War, Japan was so elevated the emperor. So all these religious people who are not necessarily Shinto, they have this conflict. They were often asked, do you... Do you worship the emperor or your god? So they were always kind of between. <clears throat> and this Catholic community also had many persecutions in Nagasaki. And finally, they were able to build the largest cathedral in 1914 after, the, after several persecutions. And that's the cathedral who was very close to the hypocenter of Nagasaki bombing. So Nagasaki Catholics or um, Catholic Church had lost many adherents, many believers by the bombing. And Nagai was one of them. Nagai lost his wife uh, who came from this long-standing Catholic families. And he wondered why, why her? Why not me? Why not others? 
and also his student, he was teaching, he was a professor at the medical university in Nagasaki. He was also a medical doctor. And one of his, uh, one of his students came to him after the bombing, after the war, he had been deployed in Asia and came back after the war and found out his family had been gone by the bomb. So he was asking Nagai, why this happened to us Catholics? And, you know, other people are saying that we were not worshiping the emperor. That's why this had happened. And so that actually gave Nagai this opportunity that, well, I have to address this. So both were sort of circumstance, the circumstances kind of forced them to think about or to respond to people's agony from this historical event. So he came up with this idea that while those people who are killed by the bomb, they were chosen because they were unblemished lambs. They were so good. So that's why they were chosen. Whereas we were not as good. So that's why we were suffering from the aftermath of the atomic bombing, the loss of Japan. Um, so we have to work harder to be united with our loved ones in heaven. That's his uh, theology. That's fascinating. Did, when you uh, spoke to the those who had the Catholic background, was there any, did you detect any wrestling with um, those who dropped the bomb in terms of, were there Catholics? Why would other Catholics drop the bomb on Catholics in Japan? Yes, that is very interesting. Actually, yes, as you said, the pilot who dropped the bomb on Nagasaki was a Catholic, um, Charles Sweeney, Catholic, Amer Catholic person, um, American citizen, Irish descendant. So um, I would, I haven't found this, um, I haven't found any historical record, but he must have been blessed um, by Catholic priests at some point before this big mission. So definitely there was um, a Catholic versus Catholic, which is very unfortunate. But Nagasaki was not the first target, original target. The other city close to Nagasaki was the target. But then at, um, on that day of the mission, the uh, the weather was not as good and the pilots were instructed to drop the bomb uh, not depending on radar but uh, you know you have to see the visibility was not as good so they gave up that mission and um, the options for them uh, at that time was to bring back the bomb to the Tinian island where they left off or they dropped the bomb somewhere in the ocean. And three, they could go to the second target city, which is Nagasaki. Mm. And of course, the first target bringing the bomb back would be risky. So they uh, they just get got rid of that idea. Secondly, dropping the bomb into the ocean. This is a million dollar project. You can't just you know discard the bomb. So they chose the third option. So they went to Nagasaki. So that's another reason that they were not necessarily 
targeting the Nagasaki uh, Catholic population in Nagasaki. Also, the target was Mitsubishi shipyard in Nagasaki. Um, but unfortunately, the bomb kind of drifted from that target and into the area where the Catholics are concentrated. Mm. Now, in, you've talked so far about how the, the Buddhists and the Catholics tapped into their religious tradition to try and come to terms with making sense of why the event took place in the first place. Was there also a sense of tapping into their religious tradition to deal with the ongoing trauma uh, that they have experienced in their lives as a result? Trauma is recently a, a, a book which is called Global Hiroshima, I want to mm. say. The book came out a couple, a couple of years ago, was talking about this idea of trauma had been actually established by... Robert J. Lifton, who is a psychologist at Harvard University, who looked into the sufferers in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and he kind of did a groundwork for this idea of trauma. Um, and his work was in the 70s. So trauma itself is a very new idea, uh, given this long history of academia. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this is not much well researched yet. So, um, but I would say that their responses, like their dis respective responses, like what the bomb means to them is a way to deal with the trauma of the believers. Interesting. So it sounds like there's another research project out there for folks who want mm -hmm. to look into the trauma aspect of it as well. Right. Now, I know you're not a theologian and we don't have to get into the theology, but it's fascinating that you've got, uh, they're, they're dealing with the suffering that came about as a result of the bombing and, and being a sufferer. And both of these religious traditions have suffering are, are important aspects, if not central aspects of the, the tradition. And yet they, they appeal to, and they come away with very different understandings of how to understand. Were you struck by that during your research? Yeah, I found it very interesting, especially I was I was raised as a Catholic. So I, I thought I knew more about Catholicism. But a um, more interesting thing for me during the research was that how Catholic theology was, uh, how Catholic theology understand suffering, which I was not that aware before I took on this research. Like Buddhism, I also have some ideas. My other, my half of the family are Buddhists and half are Catholic, and so I I'm also familiar with Buddhist rituals and stuff. And Buddhism is kind of based on suffering, right? Like you have to realize the world is full of suffering, and so how to deal with suffering is kind of the foundation of that teaching. So I was not very surprised that the Reverend Koji is talking about suffering, although very differently, um, his understanding came out of that tradition. Whereas Naga's case, actually, I was looking into some encyclicals, and um, it's it's not that far from it. It is it is very interesting. Sometimes it might strike as bizarre understanding of suffering, you know, like. Uh, those people who were killed were good. 
Um, and actually, other Catholics in Japan, you know, there are some Catholics also, not just Nagasaki. And, and even within Nagasaki, Nagai was criticized. You know, and, and for example, outside of Nagasaki, this Catholic writer, famous writer says, well, what about my relatives who were killed by air raids? So their, their, death, their deaths don't mean anything? You know, like, uh, so that was part of the criticism. And within Nagasaki, some Catholics were, well, that understanding sort of exonerated actual, um, actual perpetrators, which means Americans as well as Japanese, Japanese government, uh, from taking responsibilities. So that kind of criticism there as well. Um, and also in 1980s, when John Paul II came to Japan, he visited Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He didn't say this in Nagasaki, but in Hiroshima, he said, war is the act of man, humankind. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of responding to Nagai's interpretation that, you know, God didn't kill people or choose people to be perished. So that is a very interesting tension there to me. And that was fascinating to me. Now, I think you mentioned uh, at the beginning that one of the things you were interested in or you noticed is that these the, the voices and stories of these sufferers uh, was still largely unknown. Has that, has that changed? Is it still just a phenomenon where it's widely known in Japan or is it started to become known outside? How, how has this impacted those nations that still have nuclear weapons and, and we still live under, under this threat? Well, unfortunately, I must say that it is not well known. So that's why after 70 years, you know, Nagai's, uh, Reverend Koji's understanding came out fairly recently in the 80s, in the 80s, whereas Nagai's understanding came right after the bombing. So it's been at least 70 years um, his his understanding was published in Japanese as well as in English as in, in English. But then it was still not known as much in English speaking world. So I must say that it, this is not much known. But I also I'm also afraid that this understanding just gave an impression that, oh, those people are um, you know, like saint-like, even though they suffer, they understand this in this way. Uh, but that's not that's not the point I like to make, but rather I like to make the point that how their understandings were actually not purely theological, but also um, political, um, political aspects, political factors definitely contributed to the prevalence of the their understandings. In other words, Nagai's understanding is uh, quote unquote convenient to both American side as well as Japanese side. It sort of uh, softens the guilty feelings in both ways um, because Japanese government did this started this war and mobilized the citizens and didn't end the war uh, sooner, earlier. So definitely it's kind of convenient 
convenient, easy to their ears. So that kind of, and, and then, as I said, uh, other Nagasaki critics were saying that this understanding of Nagai exonerated the people who actually got involved in or uh, decision makers from taking responsibilities. And I think this, this part is very important because as you were saying earlier, because there was no responsibility to be pursued or impute, that is why we are still dealing with the issues of nuclear weapons and radiation exposure. Well, let's talk a, a little bit about that. Uh, we've talked about the significance of the event themselves in 1945, but this this is not just a historical issue, and it's not just dealing with the the trauma and so on. As important as the experience of those sufferers is, this still speaks to us today. And before we started the recording, I, I mentioned that I remember in school, in elementary school, having air raid drills and hiding under, we being coached to hide under our desk, or if you were walking in the, you know, along a building to hide, go against the corner of the wall. And we had this false sense of security that that would protect us if we were under nuclear attack. And then for a while, that perception of that danger went away. And, but now I think uh, we've been reminded with the war in Ukraine that this is still very much a real possibility. So what are, what are some of the, the things in our world that we're living in today that these experiences speak to for us? What lessons can we learn? Thank you for asking that question. And this is very timely, especially Zaporizhia um, nuclear power plant was attacked uh, just recently, right? Um, so I'm very concerned about it. Um, but also... I have a couple of examples I can give you, which is, for example, St. Louis, which is not much known as a part of the Manhattan Project because it's not necessarily the military facilities there. But there was a chemical plant, a private chemical plant, which was processing uranium coming from Belgium, Congo, and other parts, Canada and within the US. They were processing the uranium coming from those places, making, uh, turning it into Hiroshima bomb. But when you are processing uranium, you also make a lot of waste, which is nuclear radioactive waste, which was not well managed back then. So they were spread and dispersed. And now people living in St. Louis were suffering from this radio radioactive materials, the exposure to radioactive materials. So even 70 years later, people are suffering and also Hanford facilities, which made plutonium for the Nagasaki bomb. Um, the downwinders from the Hanford facilities, they, are, they have been suffering from thyroid diseases, thyroid cancer, or many other cancers and ailments. And their lawsuit came into conclusion in, I believe, in 2015. So that's pretty recent. This is this, this century. So I would say this is um, talking about the atomic bombing is not necessarily long time ago, far away from us, this little island, people just suffered there. Uh, it's not necessarily one thing happened in the past, but it's continuously happening and still people are suffering. 
and definitely this is a, an environmental issue. And um, we tend to think that nuclear weapons kind of protect us during the Cold War. And I think that's the kind of prevalent understanding of the nuclear war, uh, nuclear weapons. But actually the United States has conducted 1,032 nuclear tests. Wow. So, um, you know, we didn't bomb other countries, but we unfortunately bombed ourselves. Right. 1,032 times. And 67 out of that had been made in the Marshall Islands when the Marshall Islands were the territory of the United States. Now they were independent, so a different country, so to speak. But um, during the, um, while they were the territory, uh, the U.S. had 67 nuclear tests. And of course, people suffered. People were evacuated, but people suffered. But not just the residents, but also people who witnessed it as the soldiers. So those atomic veterans are suffering as well. And there is a great documentary called Radio Bikini, how those people suffered in both on both ends. But those nuclear waste coming out of 67 nuclear tests were gathered and now under the concrete dome in the Marshall Islands, uh, runic dome, that's what it's called, and massive amount of nuclear waste there, but it's cracking. Mm. And also because of, the, um, because of the climate change, it's about to submerge. So this is definitely environmental issues. And if you go to New Mexico, there are many uranium mines, which were not thoroughly decontaminated. So people are suffering from radioactive materials, uh, exposure to radiation there. So it's still very recent. Um, and speaking of New Mexico, disproportionately those mines and also miners were uh, indigenous people. And in the past, African-Americans were um, being used as a test subjects. So this is also racial issues, which is very pertinent to our time. Most definitely, yeah, that's all that's more than a little depressing, but uh, yeah. I, fi I find it interesting and troubling that you know, we're still wrestling with and we remember the Holocaust, the Shoah, and we said never again. And yet we have had numerous uh, instances of genocide since. But for whatever reason, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we did not say never again. Uh, and, and it continues to be a, a threat. Um, unfortunately, also, there aren't many conservative Christians in my religious community that are advocating against nuclear weapons. I, my hope is that having these kinds of conversations will motivate more people in my religious tribe and others to get actively involved uh, in this process. And I think by listening to these stories, hopefully that provides some desire to do it. One of the things I like to do is give my guests an opportunity. Is there a question you wish I would have asked, but didn't? Is there something else you'd like to get out there for folks? Oh, no, um, you're a very good host. So you asked a question so that I was able to talk about what I wanted to say. Uh, but one thing you mentioned, this conservative Christians, um, those people are usually very concerned about uh, or care about um, uh, the United States or their families. You know, they are very caring mm -hmm. when it comes to that. And so I would like to... 
I would like them to know actually what this weapons production and testing and the nuclear waste are doing to our people. So that's so. I, in other words, I'm not just advocating Hiroshima and Nagasaki and how horribly they suffered, but also that is happening right now in our land. So that um, that's that's something they would definitely, you know, they are, they would be concerned about. So I would like to um, reach out to those people as well. Yeah, very good. Well, I, uh, I want to thank you for coming on the program. For those who are watching on YouTube, here's a copy of the cover of the book. And again, it's titled uh, Beyond the Mushroom Cloud, Commemoration, Religion, and Responsibility After Hiroshima by my guest, Yuki Miyamoto. And you can look in the program notes and find a link to that book and her bio and uh, some other materials that will be uh, of help. And I want everyone to listening to this program and watching to go out and purchase a copy and get informed. Uh, Yuki, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Again, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I want to thank everybody for watching and listening until the next episode.